Okay, today my guest is Professor David Reeve. I'll keep my introduction short to maximize our time with him. In the next 30 minutes or so, we'll talk about David as a person, uh, Professor Reeve as a thought leader and an esteemed scholar, and finally as a mentor to many PhD students and junior faculty. For the sake of time, I'll skip many of his accomplishments and give you a very quick snapshot. Professor Reeve is an AIB fellow, a senior fellow of the Asian Bureau of Finance and Economic Research, and the director of research at the Center for Asset Management, Research and Investments. He has served for two terms as accounting and finance director at GIBS, as the 2014 mid-career consortium chair in AIB Vancouver, as a GIBS development workshop mentor for five years, and as an area editor of international accounting and finance at GIBS. His 2003 study on founding family firms is one of the 20 most cited articles in Journal of Finance of all time. Similarly, his research on accounting report integrity is the most cited uh, paper in Journal of Accounting and Economics in 2004. And his research on missing R&D in the Journal of Accounting and Economics is the fifth uh, most cited paper among the top three journals in accounting in 2015. Thank you, David, for joining us. Thank you for having me. First question, what did you want to become when you were a child? I wanted to be a lawyer. I grew up watching this show called Perry Mason, and I loved it. And I just viewed myself as going to be a trial lawyer. Um, I worked in a law firm very briefly while during college as an undergrad, not as a lawyer, but just as like a, a, um, a helper, a helper bee. And I hated the place. <laughs> so <laughs> I, I quickly moved away from that career path. Uh, how did you choose uh, IB scholarship? So my undergraduate degree is in history from LSU and poli-sci. Um, and I was mainly focused on Asian history at the time. Hmm. And so, because I was thinking of being a lawyer. And so that was sort of the background for it. And when I decided to switch, decided to focus on what I wanted to do, I said, I'm going to go get an MBA or a master's degree in business. And I almost immediately, because of the, the things that I was interested in, in terms of the undergrad, um, in terms of history of China and Japan, I gravitated very quickly to international finance, international strategy, and the international business more broadly um, during my master's program. And that led me then to attend South Carolina in, in the international business PhD program there. Can you remember the first moment of awareness between domestic versus foreign? For me, domestic versus foreign, the, the concept would have been during my master's degree at Georgia State, because the very first real international class I had was an international finance class. And so day one um, in, the, in the middle of that program in two, year 2000 would have been sort of that introduction to MSC versus DC. Uh, something that is not on your CV that people might find interesting. Very little in the grand scheme of things. <laughs> <laughs> but I would say uh, probably the most interesting that you could talk to, to people about is I've done three Ironman races. Really? Yeah. I'm uh, not fast or anything. I'm slow. But I finished three Ironman races. It's an accomplishment. Exactly. It's so. a huge accomplishment. Um, if you stopped uh, what you're doing today, 
what would you uh, be doing? What's the second best career alternative path for you? So I think the best one would be actually something that's sort of related. It would be something in terms of trying to help firms get financing, um, whether it would be on the banking side or probably more on the corporate side of working for a small firm or a series of small firms and helping them to secure funding. Uh, regrets. Have you got any regrets? Oh, lots of regrets, <laughs> especially about failed research projects, right? And every time I get a rejection from a journal, it's a, it's a regret. Um, but I think perhaps the biggest one in terms of research has probably been after the, the first series of family firm papers I did in the early 2000s with Ron Anderson, we then turned and said, well, we're going to do this stuff on competitive intelligence. And we thought we had the world by the tail. And we wrote three competitive intelligence papers. And we really thought they were really interesting. And we sent them all out. And everybody said, this is terrible. This is trash. And got rejected all around. So we wasted probably three years on those projects. So I would say that was probably the, the biggest regret that I've had. Well, uh, the next question is, what's the biggest failure and what did you learn from it? So uh, let's just follow up on that one. Yeah, so this was the failure. And it was also um, what I learned from it is you can't get too in love with the idea before you start talking to people about it. Because we had an inner core of us working on this paper. And like the family firm papers, we actually wrote the family firm papers. You mentioned the JF, but there was three published in 2003 and another one in ASQ in 2004. And these papers were all done simultaneously. And then we sent them out. And we did the same thing for the competitive intelligence. And both of them we had sort of held within ourselves and really had not shopped them around, had not done much with them, and then sent them out. And that worked the first time, but it was an utter failure the second time. And I realized one needs to get feedback much earlier in the process from people outside the circle. Interesting. Uh, what are you most passionate about? So I tend to cycle through hobbies um, outside of research. I'm always having a hobby. So for a while it was triathlon, it, for a while it was golf, for a while it was karate. Um, now it's, you know, um, it was hiking for a bit. Um, now it's, I'm back in a golf phase, you know, so I get passionate about hobbies and I do them for a while. And then I got to move on to something else. Good. Um, uh, let's talk about research. How do you explain or describe your research to people who don't read your work regularly? Say you're stranded in a... Like problem. everybody. <laughs> <laughs> well, you, you can't actually say it because you're the most cited person uh, of all time in certain areas. So uh, no, you can't say that. <laughs> Fair enough. So I think my research is fairly um, simple. I think a lot about how should we organize firms? or organize organizations as if you want, if you don't want to use the word firm, but I mostly am thinking about firms. But like, I wonder a lot about, you know, like, why do we have for-profit hospitals and not-for-profit hospitals? What is the competitive advantage of having these two groups? Why do we have some, in some countries, we have family firms and we don't have family firms that prominent in other countries. And in some industries we have a lot of them and some don't. 
why is this the right competitive structure? How do we organize the compensation structure of a multinational firm versus the domestic firm? And so I'm always thinking about what's the optimal way to organize an endeavor. How do you, uh, I, I'm curious about how you come up with these uh, creative ideas, the different contexts or uh, very unique context to test these ideas. Where does creativity come from for, at least for you? So often it's from reading things like the Wall Street Journal or watching the news and I'm listening to them and they'll say something in the popular press and I go, that just cannot be. Okay. I mean, I just, that just, I mean, literally, I just, that cannot be. Um, um, I just don't see how that is an equilibrium outcome. And that's usually what, what, what sparks a lot of the papers that people will say things and I'm like, nah. So like on the family firm stuff, for instance, people would arguing that, well, you know, family firms didn't exist in the U S and if they did, they were bad. And I'm sitting there thinking, I can think of several family firms in the U.S. literally off the top of my head without doing any digging like Walmart, uh, you know, and they're fairly successful. And so there must be some competitive advantage for them. There must be some competitive disadvantage for them. And so that's what usually sparks. Someone says something as an accepted wisdom. And then I start thinking about, well, is that right? How can we test that? How should we think about that? Um, I would talk to some insurance guys recently and they were talking to me about um, ownership structure of insurance firms because insurance firms have mutual ownership and for profit and not, uh, I should call for stock ownership. And they were all saying, well, the mutuals are all a bad idea and stock ownership is the way to go. And I'm like, well, but there must be some competitive advantage. They'd all die out, right? If, if something is all bad, it doesn't last very long at all. The, the really good firms will just out hustle them. So there must be advantages and disadvantages to both of these organizational structures that allows them to, to maintain. Um, I mean, so that's sort of my thinking. It worked out great for your career uh, as an author, as a researcher. Um, now from the side of the uh, editorship, as an editor, as a reviewer, uh, how do you spot uh, papers that have problems like this? Or can you, uh, what kind of advice do you give to people about what not to do when they're writing their papers that are not feel that interesting? So let me start with the negative and then I'll go to the positive. Yep. So on the negative, I see a lot of papers in my career where I get them as either as editor or reviewer, where they almost start with, there's this gap in the wall of, of knowledge and I want to fill this gap. And it always makes me, the mental image I get when people say that is that there's this wall of bricks and you need a little bit of mortar in between the bricks of knowledge and they're going to fill that gap with a little bit of mortar. Okay, that's what it makes me think of when I hear those types of phraseologies. And a lot of papers seem to fit into that category. They're the mortar between the bricks. They're not the bricks of knowledge themselves. So when I think of what, what makes a brick paper, the paper that really helps us build the knowledge wall, I think of either it's A, it's gotta be a new question that people just have not thought about asking this question before. Or it could be an old question, but they've got new data that's gonna give us new insights on it. Or the third thing is they have a new way of doing the testing 
the research design is really going to allow us to make causal inferences about it that we couldn't make before based on correlation evidence. And so for a good paper, it's gotta have one of those three. It's gotta either have a novel question, novel data or novel research design. And so to me, that's always the hallmark as I start looking for it. As soon as I read the abstract, what's interesting here? Does it have one of these three things? Now that you have time to look back at the field, uh, what can you say about the omitted variables, omitted contexts or concepts that we have neglected in the field uh, that we should be covering more of or introduce uh, for the first time? So I think when I, when I focus on IB research, I don't think of it as the omitted variables in the classic regression approach or that we're missing variables mm -hmm. in that way. I think of it more of we've relied so heavily on correlation results to draw inferences that a lot of our accepted wisdoms are because we believe this story to begin with, we found some correlation, and then we've interpreted it how we think about it. And so where the, 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 the big growth area is going to be is ways to figure out field experiments, natural experiments, but more the field experiments in IB. We just don't have enough of them. I mean, everyone wants to do econometrics and do fancy stuff like that. Um, and you'll see you know, a lot of that, but if we can get more field experiments into IB, I think that's where we're gonna actually start pushing the, the knowledge boundary much more. And we're gonna find that many of the things that we think we know because of the correlation results, we just don't really know. And that the field experiments are gonna shed new lights on them. About uh, new geographies, uh, about new uh, puzzles, uh, concepts that we have not touched on. What can you say about those? I don't think we know about the old concepts. Like I, I don't understand multinationals versus domestic companies. If you look at uh, my first research in IB was on comparing MNCs, capital structures of MNCs and DCs. And when we do that, we take the MNCs as a given, we take the DCs as a given, and then we run our regressions with them, right? We've progressed beyond that to looking at companies that are sort of born global, but we still don't really understand much about this distinction between multinationals and domestic corporations. Why do some firms become multinationals and others don't? So uh, I, I don't think it's about necessarily always identifying new questions. It's about bringing new evidence to bear on these questions where we think we've already had them settled. About uh, interdisciplinary research, uh, what are your thoughts about that? And do you think you're moving so, away from the target? So for, for me, I've always had a hard time even thinking about what is disciplinary research. And, and let me tell you why I say that. So I start, my PhD is in international finance in South Carolina. My first job was in a management department. My second job was in an IB department. My third job was in a finance and econ department. My next job was in a finance and accounting department, and now I'm in an accounting department in finance at NUS. So I've never really figured out what department I belong in, and I've published in multiple locations. And so when I think about domains, and I think about and the distinction between that and interdisciplinary research, 
much of the, of the business research that we know, say, if you think whether it's in strategy or corporate finance or accounting, the unit of analysis is the firm. And a lot of the questions are the same, whether it's in accounting, finance, or strategy. The difference is, do they bring more of an econ perspective to it, more of a sociology perspective to it? Are they bringing more of a psychology perspective to it? Are they bringing different toolkits to it? So when I think of interdisciplinary research, my first thought is about bringing multiple toolkits to it. So in different theoretical concepts to this question to really be able to answer it. And so when I think of IB research, to me, it's already almost interdisciplinary because you need, if you're studying firms, you need to understand and be thinking about all of these. If you're studying individuals, whether it's in, uh, you know, marketing or whether it's an M&O or HR, in all of these areas, you're studying this unit of individual person and you need to bring all that toolkit to it. And so I have a hard time even thinking about what's not interdisciplinary research. Uh, let's say a patient knocks on your door and uh, says, you know, I'm, uh, I need a great idea for, that will sustain me for the next five to 10 years, a great dissertation topic. I'll be passionate about anything you tell me <laughs> to be passionate about. What's the uh, next five to 10 years of the field? Uh, some great, uh, top questions, uh, great questions in your opinion. Well, let me, add, let me ask you a direct question first. My first question response to that PhD student was, please tell me one too, because I would also <laughs> like to know what that question is, right? Um, if I had it, I'd be working on it. But I think one of the, the areas that we are going to be expanding on dramatically. If you think about how much of the research been, has been done in IB and strategy and finance and accounting, a lot of it's been, let's look at a firm, let's get some say accounting data or some sort of market data, and then we're gonna run some regressions this way to see what sort of works. What we have not done is look deep within firms. Okay. mainly because the data has not been available. So we do research, for example, on the compensation structure of the CEOs. And then we expanded it to, wow, now let's do the compensation structure of the top management team, right? Major advance. So first it was CEOs, and then it was the next five or six people. Part of that's because that data was available in company disclosures. But what we really want to know is like, what is the compensation structure of the entire firm? And how does that vary across firms? How does it vary with ownerships? How does it vary across countries? How does it vary with, vary with strategies? Some firms have very different strategies, even in the same industry. And does that affect the shape of the compensation structure? Now, I'm just using compensation structure as an example of we're going to, I think, over the next five to 10 years, as data becomes more available, we're going to be moving much more inside the firms and understanding the organizational structure within an individual firm for multiple firms to be able to do this type of analysis. Mm -hmm. uh, about uh, who was your advisor when you were going? Chuck Kwok. Hmm. Chuck Kwok was my advisor at South Carolina. And what was the best advice you received from him? Don't be stupid. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I have a tendency to open my mouth and just say stupid stuff, and be like, "Don't do that." You know, um, you need to stop, pause, and think about what you say. And uh, I mean, you you've done the consortia for the junior faculty, mid-careers uh, faculty, um, young scholars. 
uh, what are some of the common mistakes that you see that uh, doctoral students or young faculty usually so I think with, for doctoral students the number one thing is that you know they've been working on usually by the time they come to a, a meeting like AIB and they're, they want to talk about their research they've been working on this topic say a year year and a half and they've been thinking a lot about it And then they come in into a room and they want to talk to people about it. And they assume that we know as much about this topic as them. Because, you know, we've were all the people in there are experienced researchers. Well, unless we've actually done a paper on exactly that question, we probably don't know it as deeply as them. And so what happens is, is a lot of times for the doctoral students, they get lost in the details of what they're doing, as opposed to saying what it is they're doing and why they're doing it. Right. So instead of starting with like, here's my main research question and here's why it's interesting. Here's why you should care. They start talking about their data and they talk about um, what their findings are. And you got to sort of bait that hook first. Um, for junior faculty, once they've graduated and been out a few years, um, I think the biggest problem there that I have seen in, in going to conferences is that They spend a lot of time on research design, but they don't spend as much time on writing up the analysis. And so if the analysis takes, you know, two months, writing it probably should take three months because uh, it's a constant portion of writing and rewriting to get that message across and presenting it a few times and talking to it to people with different varied backgrounds. And I think that's not something that we teach in our typical PhD program. You know, when we when we teach PhD courses, we teach a lot about here's research design, here's how this paper did this, here's the five or six or three or four tables that needs to go in there, and here's what's good about it, and here's what's bad about that paper. Because that's easy to do in a classroom setting in, in a PhD seminar. But that's not how you do research, right? You start with a research question and then you think about, well, is this an important question? Why is it an important question? Who is the intended audience? Right. What audience would find this question interesting and what audience would not find it and why would they find it interesting and trying to trying to do that. It, it's difficult. It's not anything that's ever going to become easy. But spending that time on that, I think, is probably the biggest thing for most junior faculty. Uh, at least for you, what was the hardest uh, skill you developed or uh, talents? You nurtured over time. I oh, mean, my biggest about writing, but yeah. Uh... So my continued biggest problem is that I have poor social skills, um, and that shows up when you go to conferences. And as in PhD program, we don't emphasize this notion that social skills are quite important because we think about what well, every paper is going to be just viewed independently and and. Uh, every paper is just, there's just this research question and then there's how you did it. But having the social skills to be able to interact with people and, and being able to get their feedback and then to give you feedback, right? Because when you go to get feedback from somebody, they got to want to give you the feedback. I, I, I'll illustrate that with a story from fairly early in my career. I'd been out about, I don't know, seven or eight years and I went to a conference And I'm standing there talking with a group of friends and this PhD student walks up 
and says, let me tell you about my dissertation. Interrupts our conversation. Just says, let me tell you about our dissertation. And then gives us five minutes nonstop about her dissertation. And we all just kind of stood there like, okay. I'm thinking internally, well, at least I had better social skills than that. But okay. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and, and then she walked off. And then we thought that was really odd. Okay. And we're joking about that. And we put it out of our minds, didn't think about it. And about an hour later, it seemed like she came up again and did the same thing again. But it was a different dissertation. <laughs> And we're like, okay, this is really weird, okay? Um, what it ended up being is that uh, these two girls, these two women were um, sisters, and they were just finished their dissertation at the same time. I think they'd been homeschooled. Um, social skills were not their big thing. But it's one of these things that that's, everybody who's at that conference knew exactly who they were, but not in a positive way because they did that to everybody at the conference. And so they made a mark on the conference, but probably not the best mark they could have made because they were actually quite smart and did interesting stuff. But um, the social skills limited people's willingness to give them feedback. And so when I think about what I have to work on, when I think for many of us have to work on, we have to think about developing and working on those social skills so people will be willing and enthusiastic to give us feedback on our work. Uh, interesting story. Um, like I, when you were talking, I, I was thinking, who would teach uh, a person like that? I'm thinking, do I teach my uh, students how to talk, how to walk, how to approach or network? And we don't really do that, do we? Yeah. No, we don't. And there's a bit of a selection, right? Because who goes into academia? You know, I know myself, I'm not a social butterfly. And this is one of the reasons I probably selected into academia without thinking it wasn't a conscious thing, uh, but it was, you know, clearly something that was underlying. And I, I suspect that that's true in many disciplines within academia. I mean, more so in some than others, but, and so I think it's something that we really need to be cognitive of for you know, the new people coming in. And, but even for the older people like me now that, you know, I still fight it. I want to go to a conference and sit in the corner and not talk to anybody. And I have to fight to go and talk to people um, and be, you know, inquire about them, what they're doing. Okay. Social skills, uh, obviously methods and the theory, we, we have that one. Uh, advice to young scholars, doctor students and junior faculty. What to do now, not, not what not to do, but what to do. So I think the biggest issue in terms of what to do is you really have to read non-academic articles. You really have to be watching the Wall Street, looking at the Wall Street Journal, looking at these non-academic sources, because they are actually talking about the problems that businesses and organizations are facing today. And as academics, that's the problems we need to solve. So if we're trying to get our ideas from some paper that was in SMJ or in JF or in ASQ, well, that's not the place to go to find ideas. That's not the place where you should be getting sparked from ideas. Where we should be getting sparked from ideas is when we watch CNN and they talk about this is a problem or this is an issue. Those are the kind of problems that we should be tackling. And so when you're trying to come up with ideas and you're trying to think of problems, you should always be going out 
what are the problems that real organizations that that people are actually talking about in in, in, the, in, in any given industry? Thank you. Uh, David, what's the question that I should have asked you but didn't? Hmm. That was a bit more of a challenging question. Um, I would probably want to ask somebody, you know, like when you think about academia, there's a large luck component of it. So I would probably want to ask people how much of your career success is based on luck and how much of it is based on, you know, some innate skill that you have. And I think for... And I think for me, um, that luck factor is extremely high. Um, I was fortunate I got hired in the International Business Department at American University. Um, and at the same time, they hired somebody in accounting, two people in the finance department. So there was four of us that all came together, brand new rookies or just out a year or so. And we sort of... I don't know, fed off of each other. Uh, we worked together, many of us. Ron Anderson was one of those ones that Augustine Dew was one of those, some of my long-term co-authors within this. But if I hadn't been hired by that school at that time and met the people at that stage in my career that I met, I don't think I'd have had a very successful career. I mean, I would have done stuff and I had publications before that. I'm sure I'd have publications, but this luck factor in who you run into and who you can work with um, I think it, it, we underappreciate. Thank you so much, David. This was thank very you. interesting. I learned a lot. I'm sure the audience will agree with me. Uh, You're a good you. interviewer, so thank you very much. <laughs> Thanks.